0: Our teaching text for today, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this portion of your word. We pray now for Adrian, who will preach it to us, and for all us who will listen. Would you teach us what you want to through this, we ask. Lord, we don't just want to go through the motions of reading and considering and going away unchanged. We want today to meet with you face to face to live out the truth of your word, because we know that will be for our benefit and for your glory. Make that possible, we ask, through the power of your Holy Spirit now. Amen. Amen. Adrian.
1: Morning, everybody. My name's Adrian, and I'm a member here. This is going to be good. (laughs) Good. No, really, it is. It's really, uh, I love this story. It's an exciting story uh, where Jesus just, uh, he kind of arrives and uh, with a big bang. His, John's mission is over, as we saw in the video. He's been imprisoned by Herod. He's, John has done his job. John has has finished. Jesus arrives triumphant from his uh, victory over the devil in uh, in the desert where he resisted the devil he resisted temptation and he arrives he's his um, his metal has been proved and he's uh, he arrives and uh, it's almost like sort of bang jesus just arrives and he's walking by the shore and he calls these people and he says uh, and he calls people to a message of, uh, to a um, to repent and believe. The kingdom, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. It's near. Now that is the good news. That is really exciting. He's calling people to repent and believe. Jesus not only taught the word of God, but he demonstrated the word of God as well. And uh, that's... Uh, First point, really, is that's us as well. Not only do we uh, proclaim the Word of God, we proclaim the Word of God out of our lips, out of what we say, but also how we live. And we proclaim the living Word of God. That is uh, something that we are called to do. We're to demonstrate the power of God. We demonstrate the power of God the way we've turned away from our sin and the way we live our lives. We demonstrate the power of God by um, interceding on behalf of people, by uh, perhaps praying for the sick, on doing all manner of things, how we demonstrate. The, the kingdom of God is demonstrated through with miracles and through healings and other such supernatural acts. So that's as disciples of Christ, that is what we should be doing. Jesus says the time has come. The time has come. In the the Greek, there are two words for time. One is kronos, the other is kairos. Kronos is, when I look at my watch, it says it's um, 12 minutes past 12, roughly. Kairos is God-appointed time. God lives outside time, he lives above time, he's not subject to time, he doesn't go to bed at night and wake up in the morning, he doesn't have breakfast, he doesn't have lunch, he doesn't have afternoon tea, dinner, supper, and all those sorts of things. He's outside of time, he's above time, he lives above time. Now we are subject to chronos time, but um, We are, uh, so God is is all about Kairos time. Now, Kairos means this is the moment, this is now. So when Jesus says the time has come, this is the appointed time. There's no accident that Jesus arrived at that time. It was God's appointed time where heaven was going to come to earth. And that is, that's part of the good news it is now time for God's intervention in the affairs of man. Now, when a mixed group of people hear a message, it's going to be interpreted by, in different ways. Because we all apply filters to what, uh, to what we hear. And so when the, Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand, there'll be people... Who, were, um, who knew what the prophets had said and they, they perhaps had a, sort of an understanding. Now there would be others who were more um, of the zealot sort of uh, side of things that wanted to see the Romans kicked out and they'd be thinking, hey this is good we're going to kick the Romans in the butt get them out and I'm going to go and get me mega hat, m- make Israel great again hat and I'm going to uh, sharpen the sword and we're going to make Israel great again could be a parallel in this world somewhere. And, um, and Jesus' kingdom it isn't about a geographical place with boundaries. Jesus' kingdom is completely and totally different. The kingdom of God is different. And uh, those that were aware of what the prophets were saying were more in tune with what God was going to do. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, this is what the prophet says. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day. I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, quick reminder of what they did says the Lord, but this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. The law will be written on our hearts of flesh not hard tablets of stone. And Ezekiel wrote, "I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will make, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you uh, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." God, through the person of His Son, is about to unfurl His ruling power over the earth, over the world, and change the world, and the world would never ever be the same again. So that is the kingdom was going to be new. It wasn't going to be a geographical place. It was going to be a kingdom of, uh, that was written in our hearts and God's kingdom, and it would be totally different. So what is the good news to which Jesus referred to? For the people of Israel at this time, and we need to think in the context of what the good news would have been to them. It was the arrival of God's reign and rule and to put things right. And that is what the good news is. So it would be to vanquish evil, usher in justice, establish the kingdom of Israel, conquer sin, eradicate sickness, and vindicate the righteousness. That is how those people would have perceived that message at that time. And it's quite well summed up in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and this is what jesus said over himself uh in luke when he wrote he read that scroll the spirit of the lord is upon me because the lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor that's what the gospel the good news good tidings to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes. Who wants to get rid of their ashes and receive beauty? The oil of joy for mourning. Are you mourning today? God wants to bring you and, and pour the oil of joy upon you. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And what I love, the next verse is those people that were formerly oppressed, broken, poor, and they, and he's referring to those people, they shall build the old ruins. There's there's a restoration going on in people's lives. They shall rise up, the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So those people that were broken, those people that thought they were worthless, God is going to raise them up and they're going to do mighty things in his name. But to the Gentiles and subsequent, uh, subsequent generations, the good news, the gospel as we know it, is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the cross and the forgiveness of sins. That is the ultimate coming of the kingdom is Jesus dies to save us from our sins. Having declared the kingdom is at at hand, is here in the person of himself, he called the people to repent and believe. Now the order's important here, it's repent and believe. It's not believe and then repent, it's repent and believe. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. It's not regret what we have brought upon ourselves. It's not annoyed that we've been caught. I think um, so often you see in the news, you see people, you know, they were found out. And they're, oh, I'm so sorry I've been found out. They didn't mean they were. They're they're, they're sorry they've been found out. Because they wouldn't have stopped until until they were found out you know it's a big difference when someone is brought to repentance because they haven't been found out and they, they confess now that, that is completely and totally different so repentance is not just feeling sorry for yourself our repentance I believe is inspired by God the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He convicts us of our unrighteousness. He convicts us of the judgment to come. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but sorrow of the world produces death. So if you're just sorrow, if you're just full of sorrow, and I'm, oh, sorry I did that, And uh, that isn't the same, but godly sorrow, the, the sorrow that we receive from God leads us to salvation. Our sorrow has to be because we've offended God. We have to acknowledge that we've offended God, that we've sinned against one another, that is correct, but primarily we have sinned against the Father. When we know that, When we understand that, when we receive that, we will experience godly sorrow. True repentance is when we acknowledge our trespasses are against him. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And David knew this. In Psalm 51, he says, against you, when he's talking to the Father, he says, against you, you only, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. Like David, we have defied God's authority. We have broken His laws. We've provoked His anger, and we deserve judgment. And in Romans two four, Paul says, "Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, or tolerance, as perhaps another word we would use, not knowing that God's kindness?" Is meant to lead us to repentance. God is kind and leads us to repentance. Now, repentance is uh, is not a popular thing to do because it means we humble ourselves, we surrender our pride, and we have to admit that we've been wrong and that. uh, Well, you know, it it can be. It was. It was certainly awkward for me when I uh, when I came to the Lord, and I can remember that. I'd, listened, I'd heard the gospel so many times, it's, it's incredible, 40, 50 times probably before, and I remember on a, on a Monday evening, I'd got home from work, and I was in a shared house, and we all had our own bedrooms, and I was, I was there in my bedroom, and I was sort of walking around it, and uh, you know, God was really on my case, and I, um, I said, okay then, I said, I give in, you're right, and that sort I've done it all wrong and all that sort of thing. And I sort of thought, well, that was good. And he, he said to me, could, you know, he said to me, he said, no, he said, you get on your knees. There was I had to be, if you like, broken, and I had to have that. Yeah, you know, generally, I had to, and that godly sorrow came over me where I I got on my knees and it was like a child. And I, I can remember on my knees with my elbows on my bed, you know, in that, tra- in that sort of traditional pose. And I really had to confess my sin. And I think ever since that day, I've been confessing my sin. Because, you know, it would have been a long time. I'd have been on my knees a long time going through everything. But I remember there were immediate things that I did. I mean, I had, a, I'm, you know, I'm not ashamed, I am ashamed and not ashamed to mention this, but you know, I, um, I had a collection of, of uh, magazines, pornography and that kind of thing. And I remember on the, um, the Tuesday, I put them in the bin and burnt them. And uh, that was, you know, that, I didn't give them away to people at work, but I, um, I, I, you know, I had to burn them and, that, you know, that's the sort of, that's the, you know, God calls us when we repent, he calls us to deeds of repentance. There's, there's acts that we do that show that our repentance, that we have turned away from the way we were and that we're walking in a new direction. We're doing something different. And I believe people have a shallow view of sin and they don't sense their rebellion against God. We have all rebelled, we've all gone our own way, and there is, we all need to, to repent of our sin. And some people—I mean, in the conversations I have on Twitter and uh, other, other conversations I've had, people don't well, I haven't sinned, there's nothing wrong with it, God made me this way, God did this, and uh, it doesn't matter, even if there is a God, I don't need to, uh, to change. Anyway, I've heard that his love is unconditional. So what do I need to do? Anything about that? I can continue living my life as I want to. I don't need to change. If there is a God, and he's a God of love, why is he going to condemn me? You know, they only know part of the message. They only know the sweet, nice bit of the gospel. In, the, uh, in one of the prayer books, there's a prayer of general confession. And um, here's, an, here's a modern version of it starts really well, you'll understand it, benevolent and easygoing parent. We have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're not really our fault. Due to forces beyond our control and external environmental circumstances, we have sometimes failed to act in accordance with our own best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best we could. In fact, we're better than most. We are glad to say, that we're doing okay at the moment, perhaps even slightly above average. But be your own sweet self with those who know they're not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things according to your unlimited tolerances, which we have a right to expect from you, bearing in mind your unconditional love. Yours sincerely. Now, I hope you realize that's satire and not... And not the new version. Yeah. For that, for so many people, that's their experience. Perhaps not all of that, but that is part of their experience. And I just want to take one thing there, the unconditional love. Now, you could, ar- you could argue that in Romans 5.8, where it says God showed his love for us in that Christ died for us whilst we're still sinners, is an example of God's unconditional love. Now, It may be, but I think the actual phrase is unhelpful, because if it's not unpacked, now God's love may be unconditional in the fact that it is open to everybody to approach him. They don't need to do anything. They can come just as they are. But God's love is such that he doesn't want us to stay the same. So I believe that it is not a helpful expression unconditional love. If you take John three sixteen, which is you know the world famous verse, for God so loved the world, so there we go. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now that people say, well there, there you go, there's the example. God so loved the world. I say. Yeah, but it's conditional. No, it's not. Oh, yes, it is. No, it's not. I said, yes, it is. I said, because it says whoever believes in him. There is a condition attached to it. You can't, so that's where the universalists get their argument from is that, you know, God's love is unconditional and you don't have to do anything. But we know that people need to believe and that they need to repent and believe. Now, repentance on its own is okay except for you end up living a humanistic lifestyle where you try to do the best for everybody but it doesn't actually uh, get you saved and uh, basically you're living an unregenerated life if you just sort of uh, live a a life of repentance. We need to marry repentance to belief. Now mere factual knowledge of Jesus is insufficient. Perhaps not now because of the, the way uh, teaching in schools and, and people don't come to church or kids don't come to Sunday school. There isn't that knowledge of Christ that there was even if it was just head knowledge. But uh, we need to know Christ on an intimate level. We need to throw our, ourselves at the feet of Christ and ask for forgiveness for our sins. And we simply trust in him for our salvation. We have faith, we have belief in him that he died to save us from our sins. There's nothing we can add to the cross, absolutely nothing. The cross is all sufficient. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, It is finished. That draws a line under it. You come to the cross and you believe in him that he died to save you from your sins. That is enough. And then there's the beautiful benefit of his, of his resurrection where he, he rose again from the dead to give us new life. That is, that is the good news. Repent and believe. Moving swiftly on, the call to discipleship. Now, it looks like Jesus just sort of strolling along the shore saying, hey, you too, come and, come and follow me you follow me you follow me now it gives the impression that he's just sort of arrived and done that now i think it was because he is pre, he is preaching they have heard his message and if you look at the account in luke 6 i think it is is a more fuller account now it's a very luke type account it you know it tells you the time of day virtually when it was it was herod's 14th year of his reign and it really does you know it's quarter past two in the afternoon jesus walked along and um, all this sort of thing it's really precise so we know although not from this account so much but we know that jesus was preaching and they were responding to his word now I always think of the call to discipleship, and, uh, and I think, and, and I've got a job description here for you, so uh, this is it. Job description for a disciple. Long irregular hours, not nine till five. Must be able to travel and be available 24-7. You must be willing to die to self and deny yourself potential and likely threats from religious organization and authorities. You'll be countercultural, and people could get very angry and riots may ensue. At the very least, they may think you're weird. Performing this job may put your life in danger. You will be exposed to public ridicule and persecution. Your family and friends may turn against you. There's no pay. That's right, isn't it, Simon? There's no pay. <laughs> oh, it's very poor. No insurance, no housing costs, no pension... No security and total obedience is required. Benefits. There has to be benefits, doesn't there? Learn face-to-face from the creator of the universe. Become friends with the king of kings. Discover real joy, not fleeting happiness. Gain a new purpose in life. Receive eternal life. The costs are immense, but the benefits far outweigh and outlast the costs. The call to the fisherman is the same to us today. It is a call to make us into something that we weren't. It is a call to make us into fishers of men. Now, it's not necessarily a call to mission. It's a call to discipleship. Mission is included in the discipleship, obviously. But it is a call to being a disciple. This involves us in dying to self putting jesus first dying to the pull of this world not being conformed to the world and its values but being transformed by the renewing of our mind the call to discipleship to become more heavenly minded to contemplate and meditate on the things of heaven to hold on to things in our life lightly e.g. jobs, careers, ministries, hobbies, relationships. Jesus wants to be the most important person in our life. We must never elevate what we do and who we think we are above that. Jesus is the most important. He wants to be number one. Sometimes, uh, I mean, I've done this myself. That uh, I think that something I do, like um, if you know, when I've been on mission and and doing things, that you know, that's is the most important thing. And we've got to be, we've got to hold on to all these things lightly. And if God says, "Well, I want you to let that go," we've got to be willing to let it go. I used to be a very keen cyclist and um, was half decent at it, bearing in mind my age and all that sort of thing. And uh, I was getting. I was. I, I, I stopped cycling when I was fifty. Well, racing. That is, and uh, I was getting better at it. It was quite funny, really. That the older I got, the better I got at it. And um, and it it was all consuming because, you know, you need to devote a lot of time to it to to stay fit, get fit, and it was taking a lot of hours a week to do it. And I can remember God saying, "You need to stop." because this is and I knew what was happening he didn't tell me but I knew well he probably did tell me but it was becoming idolatry because it was something it was a it was a pastime it was an activity that in itself wasn't bad but it was becoming all-consuming and it was taking it was coming on it was taking God's place and it wasn't, and it was um, becoming more too important and more important. So we need to be aware and we need to have our spiritual ears on so that when there's something we may be doing, some activity that is becoming too big and it's taking the place of God, and we need to put it on the altar. So basically, just one question to end with, and it's will you deny yourself and follow the Lord and let him disciple you that is the question that he asks of every single one of us will you deny ourselves will we follow the Lord and will we let him disciple us thank you